So last week, if you were here, we started our series for the summer, 1 John, and we titled this series Light and Love. And the reason we titled it Light and Love is that these are the two main ways that the Apostle John, the author of this letter, describes God in this letter. Chapters 1 through 3, he is highlighting God is light. And then chapters 3 through 5, he's highlighting that God is love. And I said last week that the main purpose of John writing is to encourage Christians, to give Christians assurance of their fellowship with God, to exhort and encourage Christians to grow in fellowship with God. And, and so this morning we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. It is our custom to read God's word as we stand and give attention to it. This is God's word to us this morning. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Prophet Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, we do come and give attention. The one who spoke in the beginning is speaking now through the word you've given to us. It's not me, it's the spirit of God that speaks to our spirit. And so I pray that you would do just that, that we would have minds engaged and illumined, hearts that are softened by your word and a transformation would be enacted within us because we've encountered you this morning. We've been with you. You've spoken to us. And so I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, have you ever needed rescue? Have you ever needed someone to bail you out of a situation, intervene for you, get you out of a jam? When I was seven years old, my mom and I were driving home from seeing my grandparents, her parents, and we were driving down a country road in kind of the middle of nowhere, Alabama, in the midst of a thunderstorm and a torrential downpour. My mom was driving and quite slow because the rain was coming down extremely hard, and in the distance we saw a police officer standing in the middle of the road. We pulled up to him and he told us to pull over, take a right, uh, wait the flooding out, and so my mom took a right uh, in the small road, and immediately we plunged into a five-foot pool of water, and the water started gushing into the doors. I started to panic. Seven years old, I'm trying to undo my seat belt. Panic sets in even more, and my mom, in like super mom, superpower strength, reaches over, rips my seat belt off. My mom is not able to swim, at this moment puts me in her arms and swims through the water with me in her arms and carries me onto dry ground. That day, I needed rescue. 
few years ago, Timothy and his family were with me and my family at Duke Gardens. And we were playing out in the open field by the fish pond, and our children were playing near the pond, and I was aware, I was a little nervous that they were close to the pond, but they kept playing. And Timothy and Stacy and Rachel and I are talking, and then all of a sudden, I hear a, he, he. I'm like, I look over, and I see Hunter, the Price's son, going, he, he. And I don't see my then two-year-old son, Henry. So I run as fast as my slow self could run to the pond, and I see Henry bobbing up and down in the water, flailing about. And I reach in, and I pull him out, and his mom's right behind me. Rachel picks him up in her arms and carries him all the way to the car. That day, my son needed three people to rescue him. Hunter to intercede and make it known he was in danger. His dad to pull him out and his mom to make him feel secure. Seven-year-old Daniel, my two-year-old son, needed an advocate, someone who could rescue them. Have you ever needed an advocate? First John says we all need an advocate. We all need someone to rescue, to rescue us, that it's through an advocate that we experience fellowship with God. It's through an advocate that we experience fellowship with a God who is light and love. 1 John 1, verse 5, and 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 have the same phrase. This is the message. So you can divide this letter into halves. Chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 3, verse 10, and then chapter 3, verse 11 through the end of chapter 5. The first half, God is light. The second half, God is love. This is the message. God is light, he says in verse 5. This is where the message of the gospel starts. It always starts with God. It's extremely important that the message of the gospel is first a message about God. We must learn the truth of who he is as he's revealed himself to us. We do not start with ourselves. If we do, we will accommodate God to ourselves. We start with God so that we can understand ourselves properly. If we don't start with ourselves, we'll go astray. So God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Light in this verse stands for the holiness of God, the absolute, utter purity and holiness of God in which all darkness is dispelled. Starting here helps us understand the gospel and our fellowship with God. Here is how. If God is holy, 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 as the angels around his throne are singing even now, and in him there is no darkness, to be in fellowship with God, to be in relationship with God, it means that he is dispelling the darkness of our lives and is pointing out every unholy thought, every unholy word, every unholy deed. For there is no darkness in his presence. Now imagine with me, If you were in a filthy room, but it was completely dark, stuff was all over the place, chaos and disorder was in the room, but you couldn't tell because it was completely dark. And I ask you, hey, is is this room messy? And you're like, I'm not sure. I don't know. But then I light a small match and I hand it to you. And then all of a sudden you can see that the dresser in the room is overturned and what looks like clothes are scattered on the floor. And then I give you a flashlight, a little greater light, and I hand it to you, and you turn it on, and now you can see that 
the bed isn't made and that the sheets haven't been washed for months. They're filthy. And then I give you a greater light, a halogen bulb. And now you can see that there's dust on top of all the furniture and mildew is spreading all around the baseboards. This is what awakening to a God who is light, who is holy, is like. The first sign of being in fellowship with God is that you get how dirty you are, how your thoughts and words and deeds are sinful, and, and that our hearts are actually bent inward on ourselves. We're going to look at two simple things this morning about this message of the gospel. The first is how sick we really are. We're going to look at the sickness of sin. And secondly, we're going to look at how we're healed, the medicine of the gospel. Let's look first at how sick we really are. I just got to go ahead and I've got to warn you, I'm about to dust off a, a doctrine that's been put in the attic of the majority of churches for the past 150 years, the doctrine of sin. I realize that talking about sin is not very popular in our culture, and, and it's been put away in many churches as well. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who will tell you, I, tell me, I, I just don't like talking about sin. I don't want to talk about being a sinner. I want to talk about God as a God of love, and I think most people are good, and so let's just not talk about sin. And I think there has been a reaction uh, in, in some ways good reaction to some of the hellfire brimstone preaching of the past. There, there's been a reaction uh, uh, in this tendency within Christianity towards legalism. Legalism is this kind of creeping in belief that we can work and earn our salvation by good works. And so I think in responding to some of that within the church, there's been a rightful heightening of God's love and of God's grace. And I'm thankful for that. But I also think there's been at times an overreaction for many people have left behind the holiness and justice of God. A God who Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29 says is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says, without holiness no man shall see God. John starts with the holiness of God. And when we understand and experience God's holiness, our sin is brought into the light. We're exposed. John uses the phrase, if we, if we, throughout this passage, to help us understand just how deep our sickness of sin runs, and it helps us understand the, the list of excuses and strategies we might use to avoid facing our sin. So let's look at this phrase, if we say. It's repeated in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. Verse 6 says, if we say, that we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. If we say we are a Christian, our lives should match our profession. You cannot be a Christian if your life is, is not one of fidelity and obedience to God. To live this way, it's like saying to your spouse if you're married, you're the one and only. I love you and you alone. There is no one else, and then you're having an adulterous affair one after the other. You might feel like you love your spouse, but we all know marriage doesn't work that way. In the same way, you cannot claim marriage to God and be continually unfaithful. And then verses 8 to 10, we see that phrase again, if we say, 
And verses 8 to 10 sound a little similar, but they're different. Let me start with verse 10. It says, if we say we have not sinned, say we've not sinned. And what John's pointing out here is that, that, that we all have actual sins. Actual sins like thoughts and words and deeds that are not pure. That if we claim we have no sins, God's word is not in us. What he's saying is we all have very specific sins that we can't confess. That's why we corporately confess and then specifically individually confess every Sunday because we all can confess the ways we've been angry or greedy or lustful or judgmental. Not just general sin, but specific sin. And the greater problem, though, is what John says in verse 8. He says, if we, ha- if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And what he means by sin here is our sin nature, our nature, our mind, our emotions, and our will are all, all bent away from God towards selfishness. He is saying we are sick with sin. We have a cancer called sin. And the cancer of sin causes symptoms like anger and lying and greed and stealing. Just like someone who's sick with cancer will cough or get fatigued, but the symptoms are just signs of a greater sickness. Our coughing or our losing our temper or our spending or our lust or our violence points us to greater sickness, the cancer of our sin, a broken nature. And we're all sick with it. But here's the truth. We don't like to admit it. We don't want to admit it. This is what John Ortberg, who's a pastor in California, uh, shares about himself. I love this story. Years ago, he, he shared this. He said, he and his wife traded in a Volkswagen Beetle for a mauve sofa. And, and the man at the furniture store warned them not to get a mauve sofa because it'll show dirt and it'll get dirty. And they had three little children at the time. But they wanted the mauve sofa. The wife in particularly really wanted the mauve sofa. So Ortberg and his wife tell the kids, hey, the mauve sofa, it's like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. You can touch every other tree in this garden, but the one who touches the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will surely die. You can sit in any chair, step on any rug, but if you get the mauve sofa dirty, you will die. That's That's what they're telling them. Well, one day, they come home, and there's a red jelly stain on the sofa. They immediately call all three children into the living room, Mallory, Laura, and Johnny. Hey, there's a red jelly stain. Who did this? Everyone remains silent. Mallory, did you do it? No, I didn't do it. Laura must have done it. Laura said, no, I didn't do it. And Johnny just doesn't say anything, remains silent. And Ortberg, who's telling the story, says, I knew no one would say a word because I was the one who put the jelly stain on the couch and I wasn't about to say anything about it. And the Apostle John is saying the one who does not admit their sin makes God a liar. We must admit our sin. We must be honest with ourselves before a holy God, the one who dispels darkness. We cannot hide from him. His light reveals our dirtiness. We've got to admit actual sins. Right? Our, you know, we like to soften sin. I, I fudged a little. That's the way we lied. 
I told a white, uh, you lied. I, I just stood up for my rights. No, you were actually self-absorbed, and you murdered that person with your anger. Our sins are many, and they're deep, and we don't like to admit it. And we have to admit that we have a nature bent toward ourselves, man-centered, not God-centered prone to defy God, to take charge of our own lives. If you ever want to just kind of observe and know how self-centered me, we are, you, we don't have to look outside. We look within the church and listen to the, to the prayers that we pray. I pray for my, I pray for me, I pray that God you would give me. Now, there's nothing wrong with petition. God teaches us to petition him. But look at the Lord's Prayer. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is one petition in the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our, da our daily bread. All the other petitions are about God's honor, God's kingdom, God's purposes, God's forgiveness, God's power. When we understand and experience fellowship with a God who is light, our sin is exposed. Closeness to God, fellowship with God, doesn't make us always feel holier. In fact, sometimes it makes us feel dirtier, more in need. That's what we see with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He comes before God and his response is, woe is me for I'm ruined. A man of unclean lips, the prophet of God. If you were going to have some type of hierarchy, which there is not in the kingdom of God, outside of the one who sits on the throne, the prophet would be up in some hierarchy of God's kingdom. And he comes away from God's presence, not feeling holy, but feeling more sinful and more in need of God's grace. So when someone carries themselves with an air of how good they are, I think it reveals that a person's not really walking in fellowship with God, even if you're very religious. Fellowship with God, we understand the depth of our sin. Here's the second point of this message. This is how healing really happens or the medicine of the gospel. So if our nature is the problem, which I just said, the question is who can change our nature? Who can change our disposition and our propensity towards the self? And the only answer is that there had to be another worldly invasion, that the eternal had to put on flesh. The eternal had to become carnal and invade our world. Jesus Christ, the advocate, he says, had to invade our world and has to invade our lives in order to change our nature. Jesus Christ, the advocate, can do this. Nothing else will accomplish this. Chapter 2, verse 1, John says, my little children. It's the phrase he repeats throughout, phrase of tenderness. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, so that you will walk in fellowship with God. But if anyone does sin, which I've just said, we all will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate an advocate is a legal term for someone who argues your case before the bar of justice. You see, we cannot go before a holy God on our own. 
We need someone to defend us, someone to intervene for us, to rescue us from our sin. And he does this by being a propitiation for our sin. Now, that's a big biblical word, but it's a good one and one that we need to know. The word propitiation means that a claim against you has been satisfied. Literally, wrath has been absorbed and goodwill has replaced ill will. For example, if you were to leave this morning and head out and caused a traffic accident and you did several thousands of dollars of damage to someone else's car, they now have a charge against you. And when you pay the sum total of the damages caused to the, that person, that person is propitiated. They now have no more claim against you. A holy God is propitiated because Jesus suffered the penalty. Jesus paid the price as he bore the weight of sin on the cross. He is our propitiation. This is how he can be our advocate how he can be our heavenly defense attorney. He defends us before a holy God. He pleads our case because he was the propitiation for us. In the place of wrath, we now get righteousness. You know, most religions will tell you that those who are good are in. But Christianity says it's those who know their need and are humble and who rely on Jesus that are in. And so if you're here and you're kind of new to our church or you're checking, even checking out Christianity, I hope you're not here and you're thinking that this church is full of good people. We're not here because we're good. We're here at Christ Central because we're broken people who are rejoicing in a good God who sent his only son to be our advocate, to defend us. He advocates for us. And for healing, the only thing God asks from us is verse 9. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. He will transform us by confession, by repentance, and by faith in Christ. How do you know if you're walking in fellowship with God? A really clear indicator is if you have a repentant and confessing heart. I like to ask the question to people when I'm with people. What sins have you been repenting of lately? What sins have you been repenting of lately? If you're able to respond, I know you're walking in fellowship with God because he's a God of light who is dispelling the darkness. And then through our confession, we enjoy sweet communion as he forgives us and cleanses us. Let me warn you of some indicators of an unrepentant heart. If you look at other, sin, other people's sins more than your own, it's a pretty good indicator of an unrepentant heart. If you're quick to point out the speck in others' eyes and ignore the log in your own eye, if you are critical of others while remaining blind to yourself, this is called self-righteousness, and it breaks fellowship with God. Self-righteousness leads you to think you're better than others, that you have no need for repentance. Self-righteousness is the enemy of repentance. Another indicator of an unrepentant heart is if you are defensive when others are loving enough to confront you. When others are loving enough to confront. I had a seminary professor, Steve Brown, 
who's like the teacher of stories. Man, just that's all our classes were. He just told stories. And he had some phenomenal stories, and he was a good storyteller. And he is now in his 70s, and he would tell the story about when he preached at General Assembly, which is the annual gathering of our denomination. It's happening actually next week in Atlanta uh, this year. And he preached at the assembly, the opening night of worship. And he said he preached with all his might on God's grace and God's mercy. And afterward, a, a younger minister approached him in the hallway and confronted him on why he didn't preach about our need to obey, our duties as a Christian. And then the young minister got really nervous and said, you know what? I think you're really arrogant. And I think you're really prideful. And Steve Brown said, years ago, I would have destroyed this young minister in an argument. I would have put him in his place. I would have defended myself. But he said, this time my response was, bingo. Think I'm prideful? I agree. Think I'm arrogant? I agree. He said, in fact, you don't know the half of it. If, if you really knew how arrogant and how prideful I was, you wouldn't even want to talk to me. And this stopped the young minister in his tracks. And it opened them up to a wonderful conversation about the gospel, about this message. I love that. That's an old man who's had fellowship with God for a long, long time, displaying a repentant heart. Someone who confronts you about something in your life, the response is, you don't know the half of it. I'm actually far worse than you would ever know. A repentant heart is teachable. It's not defensive. It says, I'm far worse than I've ever imagined. I, lo I love the early church father, Bernard of Clairvaux. He called the bitter tears of repentance the wine of the angels, the medicine of the soul. Repentance is the medicine of the soul. It heals us. Hear me, your goodness, your faithfulness, your success is the most dangerous place you can be when you know it because it leads you to self-righteousness. But your disobedience, your failure, your sin is God's greatest gift he's given to you if you know it and can confess it because it leads you to an advocate Jesus who pleads your case and who rescues you. Here's a somewhat simple way to think about growing in fellowship with God, straight from this passage. The more you grow in understanding God's holiness, that he is light, and the more you grow in understanding just how deep your sin runs in your confession, then the bigger the cross of Jesus, the bigger the gospel of Christ becomes in your heart and your mind because you're dependent on your need for rescue and you're rejoicing in a one who defends you before a holy God. This isn't the only way we begin our relationship with God. It's actually the way we continue. This is how we walk day by day by day in fellowship with God. No one can go face to face with a holy God and live. It's why we sing before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives to plead for me. We have an advocate, Jesus. And it's why we come to this table every week. One whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, a propitiation for us. And he is the one who defends us, who cleanses us, 
and gives us his righteousness and his love and his grace. Let's pray. God, I do ask that you would help us to confess honestly just how deep our sin runs, but not in a way to wallow, not in a way to to live in guilt and condemnation. We know that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But we know you reveal the dark places of our lives, the dark places of our community. And and so I ask that you would do that and that in our confession, we would turn and rejoice and be healed and be cleansed. To walk in fellowship with you, to know fellowship with you, to be in step with you, God. That we would be like Enoch who walked with God Walk with you all the days of our lives, Lord, in honesty and rejoicing in the one who defends us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.